Welcome to the international teaching ministry of Dr. Joseph G. Matera. As the presiding bishop of Christ Covenant Coalition, he travels the world teaching biblical truth with profound results in both the church world and the marketplace. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart and transform your mind as His Word is spoken by one of God's ablest communicators. We're starting our new series on this book. Father, we pray that you give us your wisdom and you would help us to understand your Word. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of James, right before 1 Peter and 2 Peter and Jude, one of the last books in the New Testament, was actually perhaps the first book of the New Testament. Uh, the first book ever written in the New Testament was either Galatians or James. And uh, this book was written by James, who was the biological brother, half-brother of Jesus. Does anyone know why I said half-brother of Jesus? Why? Why couldn't he have been the full brother of Jesus? He's not the son of God. Why? Well, was Mary born, uh, was he, Jesus born of a virgin? Right. Jesus was born of a virgin. So that means Joseph was not his biological father. You got it? So Mary was what they shared in common. Be that as it may, James was the half-brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus. Um, and if you want a list, and this is one thing the Roman Catholic Church don't want you to read. If you want a list of all of Jesus' half-brothers and sisters, there was at least six that we know of. You go to Matthew chapter 13, and it actually lists his brothers and sisters uh, because they claim Mary ascended into heaven as a virgin, which is not true. Um, so he was a half-brother of Jesus, and he did not believe in Jesus as the Messiah until post-resurrection Sunday. After the resurrection, he believed. How do I know he didn't believe? Because in John 7, it says in verse uh, 2, Now the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near, and Jesus' brothers, with a plural, that means more than one brother, advised him, leave here now and go to Judea so that your disciples may see your miracles that you are performing. For no one seeks to make a reputation for himself, does anything in secret. If you are doing these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his own brothers believed in him. That's why Jesus said a prophet has no honor in his hometown. And so... Uh, if you're having a problem with your physical brother or sister and their sibling rivalry, don't feel bad. Even Jesus, the Son of God, had it. <laughs> but he was converted after Jesus revealed himself to him at the resurrection. Uh, it's also very possible the one who wrote the book of Jude is a half-brother of Jesus because one of his brothers mentioned in Matthew 13, his, his name is Jude. But we don't know for sure about that one. In 1 Corinthians 15, 7, it talks about how Jesus appeared to over 500 of the brothers, to Peter and to James. So Jesus specifically appeared to the author of this book, and that was probably when he got converted. 
This book is considered the New Testament equivalent or counterpart to the book of Proverbs. It only mentions the name of Jesus once, actually. Um, and it's filled with what's called aphorisms, which are brief quotations of wisdom. Uh, it's things that, you know, a lot of you might read John Maxwell, other things. There are brief quotations. This book is filled with wise sayings, uh, just like the book of Proverbs, the sayings of the sages, S-A-G-E-S. Sages are wise people. So uh, in the Old Testament, and Jesus said this in Matthew 23, uh, he not only sent prophets to speak to the kings and to the nation, but it says he sent wise men. These were the sages. They were not necessarily prophets, but people who had great wisdom from understanding the ways of God and tried to bring correction to Israel. So James would be considered a New Testament sage, uh, a person of great influence. As a matter of fact, he had so much influence that by the time we read Acts chapter 12, uh, and I'm not going to read through all these scriptures, you just got to read it yourself, it seems as though James exceeded Peter as the leader of the church. James became the literal leader, the head bishop, if you will, or head apostle of the whole church. Uh, and we see this clearly in the first general council of the church in Acts 15, where all of the leaders came together to discuss a very important matter of the gospel. And it says that Peter spoke, but his word wasn't final. James, when he spoke, he ended all arguments, made the decision, and everyone listened to him. So this book is written by James, the leader of the church. Uh, I've read a lot of church history, and church history tells us that James was called James the Just. He had a reputation of being so holy and just that even those who did not believe in Christ and even the Jewish leaders had high respect for him. Uh, and they said that his knees were like camel skin because he spent at least three hours every day in prayer and his knees were so uh, thick uh, because of all the hours in prayer. And so he had a great reputation. His main call, his primary call, was to the Jews who believed in Jesus or the believing Jews. I don't want to say the Jews who became Christians because they did not consider themselves Christians. They were still fully completed Jews who believed in the Messiah, uh, and that's a whole other conversation. And uh, we could read in Acts chapter 21 how James still kept the Jewish feasts, a lot of the Jewish customs, followed the law of Moses to uh, the greatest extent possible without um, uh, doing animal sacrifices, because animal sacrifices were done away with in Christ. But he kept the law as much as he could. He uh, followed the Feast of Tabernacles, kept the Sabbath and all of that. His call was to the Jews. That's what his calling was. Paul was called to the Gentiles. So that's why Paul did not have to um, live in that way in terms of uh, following the Jewish law in that way. So let's get to the text now. It says in James, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in a dispersion. Greetings. 
Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach or without making fun of them. And it will be given to him. Well, let him ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, and its flowers fall, and its beauty fades. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So let's go back to James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. So he's writing to the 12 tribes, which means his primary focus is to the Jewish believers in Christ. Obviously, there were 12 tribes of Israel. 12 tribes in the dispersion has to do with the fact that the Jews, uh, previous to that time, during the time of Babylon and Persia and Greece, they were scattered all over the world. So he was writing to those Jews who believed in Christ. That was his primary focus. So they were not living all in Israel at that point. And then he says in verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds. Is there anybody here who's had trials of various kinds? There's a few who haven't raised their hands, so lay hands on the rest of us. <laughs> few know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness or perseverance have its full effect, that you may be perfect or may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. So he said, count it all joy. So what he's actually teaching us is that joy can be cultivated or learned, and especially in the midst of suffering. So it's easy to feel joy when you have everything you want, everything's going good, and there's peace. Uh, but joy's proof is when you don't have what you want, when things are rough, and that's when you actually learn how to cultivate joy, when you are lacking what you want and what you desire. See, there's a huge difference between joy and happiness. Someone say happiness. happiness. Happiness has to do with circumstances. Has to do with feeling good when you have your way, when you have what you want. You're able to eat the meals you want, live where you want. Uh, you have all the friends you want. You could have the pleasures you want. You could take the vacations, buy anything, or everything is going really good. Whatever you want. You, for that moment, actually, it's usually not only more than a moment, but for that moment, you have everything you want. Uh, and so you're happy. But joy is the opposite. Joy isn't against happiness. Happiness is not a bad thing. Uh, but happiness is mercurial. It's up and down like a thermometer, depending on the circumstances, depending on the weather, right? But joy is always present. Because joy is based on your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's based on being righteous through his blood. It's based on having right standing with God. It says the kingdom of God is not involving meat and drink, but righteousness, which is first, right standing with God, joy and peace in the Holy Ghost. 
so we can cultivate joy. And joy is cultivated the most when we have things happen against or adverse to our life, things that we don't like, whether it's people treating us the wrong way or circumstances not going the right way. I mean, you get it. I don't have to just think about your life. <laughs> think about things that didn't go right. And so he's saying, count of joy when. Someone say when. When we are tested. That's when you have the opportunity to get better or get bitter, to grow or to go, to run. Try to medicate yourself from your problems. Uh, and so we can develop joy in that uh, time that, when, uh, that we're tested. So joy is an inward state of peace and bliss based on right standing with God through Christ's righteousness and fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Happiness depends on circumstances. And so God uses suffering to break our wills and produce a state of brokenness in our life. Um, and so uh, we have to understand that God loves the humble. He loves the broken. He loves the contrite. He doesn't like pride. He doesn't like arrogance. He actually hates pride, and he hates arrogance. And so one of the best books I ever read in my life, and thank God I read it as a new Christian, was called The Release of the Spirit by Watchman Nee. And that book was so important for me because it taught me right away how God uses suffering, how God uses challenges to make me more into the image of Christ. I thank God I read that book before almost any other book besides the Bible because everybody knows the kind of life that we live in the world you will have, not might have, tribulation. And so I, when I learned from that book and from the scriptures that God uses these things, that it's not an accident, all these things happen, whether it's people treating you or mistreating you the wrong way, you know, whether it's things that take place that you didn't foresee, accidents or whatever it is that you could think of, when you realize that God uses that or redeems those situations for your good, you could learn to cultivate joy. And that is the main way you grow. One of the greatest revelations I ever received in my life was when I realized I don't just grow by reading the Bible and worship services. I grow when I'm tested in suffering and I respond to God in faith that's when I grow the most because I'm putting the Word into practice. When I'm meditating on the Word, the Word is getting in me, but when I'm tested, I have to then put the Word into practice. If I don't put the Word into practice, then I missed an opportunity for growth. So the next time you go through hell on earth, and yes, you do get a taste of hell on the earth. You get a taste of heaven on earth, and you get a taste of hell. When people ask me if I know what it's like in heaven, I say, yes, I do. Uh, when I walk in the joy of the Lord, I'm getting a taste. It's not the fullness, but I have a taste of heaven. But I also have a taste of hell. I've been there where I didn't want to live anymore, when I wanted to rip all the hair out of my head, when I wanted to pull the guts out of my stomach, where I cried so hard that, that everything on the inside almost burst out, out, out of me. I've been there. I've been in very dark places, uh, but I've been in very good places. 
And so we do have a taste of heaven and hell. When hell comes your way, that is a great opportunity for you to cultivate the joy of the Lord. Because it's not based on what you have and what people think of you. It's based on what God thinks of you and God loves you, redeemed you, and gave himself up for you. And so you cultivate your joy based on that, not on anything else. And so God used tests, as some of my friends would say, God used testuses to mature us emotionally and spiritually so that we will lack nothing. I love this, so that we will lack nothing. Man, God doesn't care how much money you have. God doesn't care what kind of title you have on your job. Now, God will use it. God will use nothing wrong with money. God will use money to bless his kingdom. And sometimes God does bless people with a lot of money uh, because they obey him, and that's their calling. But God's definition of lacking nothing has nothing to do with money. Because he's talking here in the context that even a poor person is exalted in faith. He says you can lack nothing when you count it all joy, when you go through hard times. Because his definition of lacking nothing has to do with emotional maturity and spiritual health. Lacking nothing is a state of being, not a state of having. Do you, do you understand that? And so it doesn't matter what kind of title you have, how much money you have, what kind of car you have, if you own multiple houses or no house, or if you live in a shack, God says you lack nothing when you put them first and cultivate joy. Isn't that something? Oh, I love that. I, I rather, I, I want God to say I lack nothing. I don't care what other people say, right? Because what other people have or what they think of themselves, one day they're not going to have anything. You're not taking your real estate with you to the next life. You're not taking your designer jeans to the next life. You're not taking your money to the next life. You're not taking your fame and fortune, celebrity status, or how many friends you have or fans you have on Facebook. You're not taking that into the next life. The only thing you're going to have is you and those you've led to Christ. And most importantly, you will have Jesus for eternity. Praise God. So we lack nothing when we grow and mature. God says, this is the man that I look to. He says, I dwell in a high and lofty place in heaven, but I will look to the man who's broken, contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. Powerful. That's worth more than anything else. I remember, because I do a lot of stuff, or I used to do a lot of stuff with politicians and high-level leaders, and I still do to a certain extent. I remember God said to me once when I was praying, he said, those who are close to politicians are a dime a dozen, but those who know me are very few in the earth. And he's not talking about salvation. He's talking about really intimately knowing him. Wow. It's powerful. Then he said to me another time, he said, there's not that many people on the earth who are on my side. Most are just on their own side. God is calling us to be on his side. That means to love the things he loves, hate the things he hates, value the things he values. As Christians, we could definitely grow in that. And so God uses tests in a very powerful way. So that we're not lacking anything. And then he says in verse 5, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, 
who gives generously to all without reproach or without making fun of you. God doesn't say, <laughs> you don't know what to do. He doesn't make fun of us for lacking wisdom. He actually honors it when we admit we lack wisdom. He doesn't like us just going gangbusters into something without praying, without seeking God. You have people who are moving. Go from job to job, church to church. You ask them, did God tell you to move? Uh, what? You're making a life-changing decision? Did God tell you to marry this person? Uh, I, well, she looks fine. <laughs> she may not look fine in a year. She looks fine now because she wants you. You better know God told you. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. You got Christians. Oh, I'd rather live here because it's nicer. Oh, really? I'd rather live in God's will. That's the nicest place on the earth. Oh, my God. You got to be kidding me. Oh, I got a nice home, a nice car. I got a pool. I've got all this room and all that. And us poor slobs here can't even find a parking spot. Oh, my God. I could sell my house by five of those houses. I'm in the will of God. That's what matters. If God sent me to Iran to live amongst the Muslims, that would be the best place on earth. Wherever God wants is the best place. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without making fun and it will be given him. So wisdom here in the context of, remember I keep teaching you, don't isolate a verse. I hate chapters and verses. I wish it was just one flowing letter so we'd interpret it correctly. Wisdom here in its context is how to live wisely in spite of trials and tribulations and suffering. A lot of us make real stupid decisions when we're under stress, when everything's going wrong, right? I remember somebody used to say, you don't know what's inside of you until you're squeezed. <laughs> you squeeze a ketchup bottle, you know there's ketchup inside, right? Uh, and so when you're really tired or when you're really stressed out, when you're really going through it, you need to walk in wisdom and not uh, respond impulsively and do stupid things. That's why it actually says later on in James, the, right, uh, the anger of man does not work the righteousness of God. Never make important decisions. Never send an email or a text or talk to anyone when you're angry. My God, the things I've said and done. And then you put it on paper or you write it and you send it. They have a new app where you have five minutes to undo something you send. You all should get it, including me. I wish we could do that with words. We speak. Somehow, I wish I could take that back. Well, the best thing to do, shut up when you're mad. I, one time I was mad at somebody, and I wanted to send a text. I waited. I said, I'm going to give it 24 hours. The next day, I was still mad. I'm going to give it another 24 hours. I'm still mad. Three days later, I'm still mad. I never sent a text. I wanted to send a foot where the sun don't shine, but that's another story. So wisdom has to do with wise living when you're really stressed. But it has to do with having a life of wisdom. 
You know, a lot of times, us in the Pentecostal charismatic circles, we think, well, I want a word of wisdom. I want God to speak to me. And you know what? I get that all the time. I pray. I see God every single day. I'm trying to get a word from God for today. I try to get wisdom on every decision I make. But living a life of wisdom is not just getting prophetic word. It's living a principled life. I'm going to say it again. It's not just getting prophetic word. It's living a principled life. When you read the book of Proverbs, actually, you read what's called the wisdom literature. Someone say wisdom literature. When you read the wisdom literature of the Bible, which is the book of Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes, and the book of Job, those three are in the category in the Hebrew canon of Scripture called the wisdom literature. When you read that, it's about living a life of understanding and wisdom. It's not just getting a word, you know. I mean, you can get a word and have God's will for that moment, but what about the rest of your life? You know what I mean? Well, you don't get a word. So God wants us to be able to get a word, to be prophetic when we need it, but he also wants us to cultivate a life of wisdom. Uh, you could read in 1 Kings it's chapter 6, I believe it is, actually chapter 3, verse 5 to 11, when God appeared to Solomon in a dream and said to him, ask me anything you want and I'll give it to you. And Solomon didn't ask for riches. He didn't ask for money. He didn't ask for his enemies to be defeated. He asked for a heart of understanding that he could rule the people wisely. And God was so thrilled with that prayer that God said, because you didn't ask me for riches, I will make you the richest man who ever lived. I'll make you the most powerful man that ever lived, but I'm also going to make you the wisest man. And that's why he wrote more than 3,000 Proverbs. He was able to write, if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, he wrote on botany, marine biology. He wrote on the environment. He wrote on everything, human relations. He wrote on everything. He was a scientist. He was a geologist. He was a botanist. He, was ever, he had amazing wisdom. So his wisdom wasn't just a word for a moment for one thing. It was a life of understanding. What John James is saying is, he wants you to ask God for wisdom, to live wisely. He wants us to have a life of understanding. For about a period of almost two years, God instructed me just to pour over the book of Proverbs. All I read was Proverbs for almost two years, except when I had to preach on something else. And if I show you my Bible, book of Proverbs, it looks like a coloring book. I mean, I could write a commentary in the book of Proverbs. God wanted me to so get principles in my spirit that at a moment's notice when I'm tested, instead of acting impulsively, instead of being mad and speaking, it says, uh, uh, you know, a soft answer turns away wrath. Proverbs 15.1. Just about to. A soft answer turns away wrath. Boom. Yes. I know. I understand, brother. How many street fights I've avoided the last 10 years? Because I remember that. We're road rage. You drive in New York City. Oh, my God. I was taking my daughter out driving the other day. And, you know, I'm telling her, don't go past the speed limit until after you pass. So, yeah. so she's driving 25 miles an hour. Everybody in the I wanted to get out and teach someone a lesson. And I said to myself, you know, Joe, you'd be doing that, too, if you were behind someone like that. And in New York, we're so uptight in driving. I don't know what it is. You drive, 
I went to San Diego a few weeks ago to do a conference. Everybody is nice and easy, and, I, and I'm thinking, my God, we are uptight. But I'd still rather live here than San Diego. Boring! I didn't like it, I'll be honest with you. It was boring. Anyway, I like, no, I don't like uptightness. But I like fast-flowing things. So we need to have wisdom. We need to have understanding. And uh, really meditate on Proverbs. There's 31 chapters in Proverbs. That's one for each day. For many years, I would begin my day by reading a chapter in Proverbs according to the day of the week. So today's the 12th. I would read Proverbs chapter 12. And I'm telling you, it's life-changing. Um, so let's go to verse 6. We're asking for wisdom, but let him ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Let not that man think that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So he wants us to ask for wisdom and understanding, but in faith. What is faith? Faith is trusting God. Faith is trusting God. Now, would you give your social security number to anybody you met on the street? No? Why not? Are you a harsh man? Are you a harsh woman? You're untrusting? No. But you would give it to your spouse, I hope. Some of you may not. Don't say anything. This is holy ground. We don't want no fights. There are some people you would give it to. Well, it has to do with trust, right? How do you trust somebody? By spending time with them, getting to know them. What does that mean? That means how in the world are you going to have faith to ask for wisdom if you don't know God? We're not talking about salvation. If you don't spend time with God and get to know him and see him in action, you will not trust him. And if you don't trust him, when you're going through the fiery furnace, when you're going through hell on earth, it's going to be hard to stand your ground. Now, even when you know him and trust him, you still need others around you. You still need church to encourage you because everybody goes through situations where they doubt. There's nobody here who doesn't doubt this side of heaven. That's why we need each other. But you have a greater chance of standing and not falling when you've developed a relationship with God by reading and praying, being in his presence, knowing his word, making sure you're always in church and in those small groups that you're supposed to be. That's how you get to know God. And as you get to know God, you trust him more, and faith develops. Double-mindedness, he says, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Double-minded man will not receive anything. Double-minded means that you're in and you're out. One day you're serving God, next day you're not serving God. Uh, you know, some people, are, you know, they're like chameleons. They change color based on who they're with or their environment. When you're with Christians, you're on fire for God. And when you're with worldly people, you're worldly. I remember reading 1 Corinthians 9. I used to justify it. I said, well, Paul said, with the Greeks, I'm like the Greeks. And with the Jews, I'm like the Jews. Without the law, I'm without law. And in the law, I'm you be all things, all people. I thought, wow, you know. God had to show me that doesn't mean you sin like the sinners. 
It just means that you don't act religious when you're with unsaved people. All right? You know, when you're with saved people, you can say, praise the Lord, hallelujah. Even some of those Christians are thinking you're nuts, including me. No, I'm only kidding. But when you're with unsaved people, those who don't know the Lord, you don't speak in tongues, start quoting scriptures, unless God really shows you to do that, then it's different. So uh, a double-minded person is somebody who acts like their environment. God wants us to be firm, committed to him, no matter who we're with and no matter what trials we're going through. And last, let the lowly brother exalt in his exhortation, exaltation, let the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of grass, he will pass away. Um, and so, again, wisdom is not necessarily meaning you have a lot of money. Uh, he's saying a poor person could have great faith. Um, and he seems to really have a vendetta or something against rich people. But if you would look at the whole context, you got to read chapter 5, who he's defining as rich people are the ones who oppress the poor, who rob them, and who even murder people um, because they're in power. So he's talking about those who are not just rich, but political leaders and leaders who take advantage of others. So Christians will read this and say, you see, it's wrong for me to have a lot of money. No, it isn't. He's, he's talking about people who are rich and oppress the poor. Um, but the point is, doesn't matter if you have a lot of money or if you have a little money. You can still be rich in faith because our life is like a puff of smoke. It's like the flower of the grass, James is saying. It's here today, gone tomorrow. The only thing that will matter, is, as I said before, it's not how much you have now. It's your state of being. It's keeping faithful with God. And it's living a life of wisdom in spite of your trials. Let's all stand. You have just listened to a life-changing message. For more information about Dr. Matera, to read his numerous articles and teachings, or to inquire about more audio and visual resources, go to his website at www.josephgmatera.com.